to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to episode 141 of Belaboured. We've got your year-end special here with some holiday travel tales, uh, talking about labor on the tarmac with JetBlue flight attendants. Uh, John Samuelson of the Transport Workers Union is going to talk to us about uh, their organizing efforts. We're also going to Fort Lauderdale uh, to talk to some airport workers on the ground who are working with SEIU to campaign for a living wage and get better safety training to prepare them for those holiday travel hazards that we've been seeing so often. But first, the news. So the public's focus has been on Congress, but the White House and the courts are where some of the very consequential decisions are being made about labor today. At the Ninth Circuit Appeals Court, a 45-year-old question about the gender pay gap surrounding the Equal Pay Act will finally get another hearing. The notion of equal pay should at least mean that for the same work, you earn the same amount, whether uh, you are a man or a woman. But by saying an individual woman has always made less, simply means preserving the status quo rather than taking action to close that gap. So that's the heart of the question that is going before the court now. In the past, some courts have ruled that women should not be forced to earn less than their male counterparts at a workplace because of their past employment history. So they may have been historically discriminated against. They may have entered the workforce at a time when work Uh, women workers were always paid less. It's not their fault, but for whatever reason, they were just in a lower-paying job. Labor advocates note that by perpetuating these wage disparities, simply because that's in the individual worker's own salary history, actually feeds into the very same problem that the Equal Pay Act tries to address, and that we still have not addressed because there still is a pretty significant gender wage gap across the economy. So the fact that women are generally paid less should not be used to justify uh, an individual worker being paid less going forward. Unfortunately, employers have tried to justify such policies of paying people based on salary history and seniority by insisting that they are being gender blind. That is, we'll just take your resume into account and we won't pay attention to your gender when we're assessing how much you should be paid, objectively, supposedly. But in this case, being neutral means failing to remedy an historical injustice. Interestingly, this worked okay for women before, um, back when meritocracy really was the main issue, perhaps. Reuters reports that in the case in question, uh, Eileen Rizzo, she was a math consultant in the Fresno school system, um, she ended up getting systematically paid less on a lower wage tier than her male colleagues, and the school board simply said that it was based on her previous pay. In that case, previously, some women might have gotten a boost from this, but now that mitigating effect is no longer there for women in many fields, so seniority alone is not going to remedy that pay gap. As Rizzo's lawyers argued in court, basing a woman's salary on so-called quote, acceptable business reason may be reasonable in the abstract and practical under certain circumstances, but a business reason that's tantamount to an endorsement of practices forbidden by the Equal Pay Act, a factor based on historical market forces, should never be allowed. That's like saying black kids have always been educated in one school, so let's just keep them that way because everything works out fine. This is one area where the law can be an ass. Gender blind to many often means being blind to gender injustice. 
but that's actually inequality, not neutrality. Uh, the coming decision could open the way for women who have suffered from historical pay disparities to help rectify their pay scales for women in the future. I mean, if the court rules against them, well then, that's just more of Trump's America for you. Today's Here's What Trump's Up To This Week is near and dear to my heart, listeners, as I spent seven years of my life waiting tables for tips. The national minimum wage in this country allows tipped employees to be paid less than the legal minimum wage because they're tipped. Most of my time as a waitress, I receive no paycheck at all from my employer. The tiny total that my 2.13 an hour came to was usually all gone in taxes. Instead, my entire take-home pay came from tips, came directly from my customers. Now, the Trump Department of Labor wants to make those tips the property of the boss. The DOL released a proposed rule that would allow restaurants to take the tips that servers get and share them, supposedly, with untipped employees like cooks and dishwashers. But the rule doesn't actually require that the employers redistribute those pooled tips to workers. Under the administration's proposed rule, as long as tipped workers are paid minimum wage, employers could legally keep the tips they collect. The anti-tipping fervor in recent years has led to some restaurants abolishing tipping from the top down, choosing to pay servers minimum wage or slightly above, and choosing to redistribute a service charge to all the restaurant staff. There has been a push by the Restaurant Opportunity Center and other organizations to eliminate the tipped minimum wage and require that all employees be paid at least the full minimum wage regardless of tips. But this Trump Department of Labor decision is the worst of both worlds. It would allow bosses to take the tips and distribute them as they see fit and choose, if they do so, to pay the minimum wage to workers. But they're legally required, maybe this is lost in the fine print sometimes, to pay minimum wage anyway if the employee's tips don't reach the minimum. So they'd almost certainly be pocketing extras and the employees almost certainly would have been making more than minimum wage. A report from the Economic Policy Institute finds that this rule would transfer $5.8 billion from workers to employees. Tip theft is already pretty common in the restaurant industry and other places we should add. And if that's not enough to convince you that this administration is all about taking from workers and giving it to the bosses, perhaps the other rule change they're considering will convince you. The National Labor Relations Board, now with a 3-2 Trump majority, is considering undoing Obama regulations that sped up union elections. Employers are known for dragging out union election processes for months while they take advantage of the opportunity to badger workers with anti-union propaganda. The good news is that neither of these decisions are final and both are open for comment. We will have links related to this on the Dissent website. A long-running legal battle over the labor rights of unpaid interns was set back again in an appeals ruling last week, which upheld an earlier ruling in favor of the Hearst Corporation. They are the publishers of Bazaar and all those other glossy magazines. Interns had sued them over wage theft, claiming that they had performed labor that should have been treated as a job. But the court decided, again, that these interns were not illegally deprived wages under the Fair Labor Standards Act or under New York state law, which might have considered them as statutory employees. This means basically that they're not workers, they're this other thing called interns. It bodes ill for interns nationwide because they in fact, do a lot of work and are increasingly becoming the indentured servant class of our white-collar economy. We all know that the pressure to pursue college degrees and enter prestigious professions has become fiercely competitive, 
and desperate young people, uh, fresh out of college or just about to graduate, they basically end up renting themselves out for free over the summer break under the promise of getting some job experience or educational credentials sometimes. That's not a very fair trade-off in many cases. It ends up being a bit of a white-collar sweatshop, and the fact that these interns would be under this ruling denied minimum wage in many cases speaks to how even formerly stable and well-paying fields are becoming plagued with precarious working conditions if you're an entry-level worker. The original ruling in 2016 set up stiff criteria for judging whether an internship should be counted as real employment. The latest ruling upholds this earlier opinion uh, by stating, as reported by the National Law Review, quote, It would be similar to what an individual would receive in an educational environment, including the clinical and other hands-on training that academic institutions provide, fit the academic calendar, and required academic credit as a prerequisite. That's what would make it a legit unpaid internship. And the court noted in that decision that Hearst had at the outset, quote, made it clear that it was an unpaid internship and that there was no guarantee of employment at the conclusion of the internship. So right, as long as those terms are offered, um, we get to count it as not a real job. In other words, for all that free labor, it doesn't even come with the promise of a job at the end. I guess that makes internships educational in one way. You learn how the economy really works. Today we're talking about the workers of the airline industry, so why not start with a strike? The pilots of low-cost European carrier Ryanair, which is based in Ireland, have announced that they might strike just five days before Christmas. In an ongoing dispute over union recognition, according to the BBC, the airline, quote, does not recognize unions, 79 of 84 pilots in Ireland voted for industrial action. The pilots have long complained that the no-frills airline doesn't offer commensurate pay to other carriers, and earlier this year, Ryanair had to cancel waves of flights because of a mistake in how it scheduled pilots. It has seen more than 700 pilots quit in the last year due to these working conditions. And now the remaining pilots are pressuring the company to recognize unions. Ryanair pilots in Germany, Portugal, and Italy have also threatened strike action. The holidays, of course, are a miserable time for travel as everyone's trying to get home, and a potential pilot strike could muck things up even more for the carrier, which is already in the midst of a public relations nightmare. But as we've noted repeatedly on this show, it's always amazing to see just how far bosses will go to avoid even recognizing the union, let alone making concessions to it. Everyone hates holiday travel, but I imagine no one hates it more than the people who have to work it, the pilots, flight attendants, and grounds workers of the airline and airport industry. As we count down to the holidays, then, we thought we'd have some timely conversations about the workers who make your holiday travel possible and even sometimes pleasant. First up is the workforce about which the term emotional labor was coined, the flight attendants. The combination of service work and safety work that flight attendants do while trapped on an airplane with their customers means that they have to do a lot of emotion management on the job, and that's not all. The flight attendants at JetBlue have filed for a union election to be represented by the Transport Workers Union, and TWU International President John Samuelson joined us to talk about the union campaign and the challenges the flight attendants are facing. Tell us about the JetBlue flight attendants organizing campaign. What's been happening and what are some of the issues that the workers are concerned about? We have now dropped cars at the NMB. Um, We have the overwhelming majority of flight attendants signed up. 
um, at JetBlue. We're organizing this really in a, you know, I don't know what my predecessors have done, but we've done a ton of organizing in Local 100 when I was the president over the last seven or eight years. We're organizing JetBlue along that kind of model um, that we utilized in New York very successfully, which is a, a complete leadership and control of the organizing by a rank and file committee of JetBlue flight attendants with resources and um, and guidance provided by the International Transport Workers Union. So this is a rank and file led organizing drive and for that reason we believe that we're going to win a yes vote because these these are rank and file JetBlue flight attendants that have done the overwhelming amount of heavy lifting for this drive. So a primary driver of all of this is is economics and JetBlue is behaving as if they are a rinky-dink, you know, regional carrier still or right. uh, a minor airline, and they're not. They're, they're an enormously successful, highly profitable um, entity right. now, but yet they still want to pay uh, flight attendants as if they're a, a very minor regional carrier who's in a precarious spot. So mm-hmm. on, the, on economics alone, the JetBlue flight attendants are 10 maybe 15% um, less uh, paid less than their counterparts at, at, at mm-hmm. airline competitors. So, and then just an- another couple, some of them are real bread and butter issues that they're right. facing. JetBlue right now considers everybody who works for them at-will employees. You know, well, you're not, right. if you're a 10-year flight attendant, you're not an at-will employee of JetBlue. Um, yeah. But yet that's how they consider them. And yet they 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 say that they're very respectful of their workforce, but consider them at-will employees, and right now there's no due process. The company gets to make a unilateral decision about employment, and that's a very dangerous thing, particularly in this day and age um, with a largely female workforce. And you have uh, mm-hmm. su- supervisors perhaps making unilateral decisions about whether they remain employed at JetBlue, and, and that all ends with a union contract. That all ends. We'll win due process uh, for JetBlue flight attendants. They deserve it, and we're going to win it. So just in, just one other element of this mm-hmm. that, that I've gotten from my own personal interactions with the organizing committee and, and JetBlue flight attendants, the airline industry is prone to mergers, right? And I'm, I'm a transit mm-hmm. guy. I'm a, actually a track worker with the New York City, in the New York right. City subway system. And and now I'm overseeing a national union that is, is an industrial uh, transportation union with a, right. with a big footprint in transit, public transit, airlines, school buses, and railroads. So I'm getting to know these these other industries, and I'm really enjoying it. But the, yeah. very much on the mind of, uh, of flight attendants at JetBlue and the organizing committee is the, is the prospect of, of potential mergers or being gobbled up by one of the other carriers. And if that was to happen and there was no union contract in place and no union presence, that would, the, the flight attendants at JetBlue would have absolutely no voice at the table during these merger talks. And I... I, organizing themselves into a union gives them an immediate voice that they would not, they simply wouldn't have right now. It's such an interesting industry, right? Because so many people's contact with flying is, you know, it's it's miserable these days. Every day carriers are all trying to cut corners and the workers are squeezed. The, uh, you know, customers are squeezed. You would think it would be pretty, easy for people to understand why flight attendants would want a union. Yes. I think that that is the evidence is there at JetBlue. So we started signing cards just before Labor Day, mm-hmm. and we started a card drive, and the overwhelming majority of 
of flight attendants have signed cards to organize themselves into a, a TW unit. So it's it, they, they, the evidence is there that the flight attendants at JetBlue and perhaps all over the place are, mm-hmm. are looking to organize to protect themselves. I understand the pilots at JetBlue were the first um, part of the workforce to organize back in 2014, but before that there were no unions at all across the company, right? Yeah, there were no unions across the company. JetBlue have no desire to uh, to see any union on the property. They want to be able to control the economic security of their flight attendants uh, at their own whim. That's a dangerous thing for a worker. Is there organizing going on with other parts of the JetBlue workforce now? As a result of this flight attendant drive, the mm-hmm. TW now has, we have the beginnings of rank-and-file committees with passenger service agents and with mm-hmm. um, mechanics. And we're still charting those workforces out. We're still charting them out in terms of the demographics and the numbers of each title. But yeah. we have had a really positive reaction from those two work groups. Mm-hmm. And concurrent with our organizing drive of the flight attendants, the IAM, the machinists, are organizing um, fleet workers at JetBlue. Hopefully they're going to get a big boost as well from our filing cards uh, with the flight attendants. It's an interesting time of year to be talking about uh, organizing the the flight carriers, right? Everybody's worried about travel for the holidays. Um, Did that have any role in the decision to go public with this campaign right now, to file right now? Um, Not particularly. We, We filed right now because we we achieved the, the threshold of card signatures that we were looking for. We made our benchmark and we filed. There was no reason to wait. So talking about flight attendants, and you mentioned that it's still an overwhelmingly female workforce. We're in this moment right now where the entire country, it seems like the world, is talking about sexual harassment on the job. And obviously, flight attendants are in a really, I guess, they, they used to be a very sexualized occupation. It still is in some ways. They are trapped on a plane with people for hours on end. It seems like they would be uniquely vulnerable to sexual harassment, both from bosses and from customers. Is this a problem that you've that the workers have come across? It is. It's a problem that's been brought to my attention. And as you noted, they they're in a kind of a bad spot. They get it from both sides, right? They get it from the the airline passengers, and they get it from uh, potentially from bosses. So I've had I've actually had personal one-on-one discussions with female flight attendants about what the union can do and how the union is going to approach various forms of sexual harassment once we win this organizing drive. And and certainly that's on our list. We intend to take action that will mitigate against the exposure that flight attendants have um, toward that type of environment or in that type of environment. The employer seems to have had a very particularly uh, negative reaction to the union. Um, I saw a story where... quoting some of the things that the management said about the third-party union. But is this going to be any different than the other campaigns? I mean, you guys had a very long bargaining process at Allegiant. Um, What are you expecting from the company on the anti-union side? And, you know, do you feel like you're prepared for it? Yeah, we're absolutely prepared for it. JetBlue is using the same old recycled anti-trade union garbage uh, where they try to say that the union is pinioned between the flight attendants and JetBlue as a third-party interloper. It's complete and total nonsense. This this organizing drive was accomplished by rank-and-file JetBlue flight attendants who 
decided it was time to take their own economic security and put it into their own hands rather than, rather than in the hands of a, of a JetBlue boss. And I don't think JetBlue realizes how this organizing drive has gotten off the ground. And every time they say that, every time they say that the union is a third-party interloper, it backfires on them because the rank-and-file organizers that are well-known to the flight attendants realize that this is an organic, um, ground-up, rank-and-file organizing drive. This is not some bureaucratic, top-heavy organizing drive coming out of Washington, D.C. In fact, there's been very little of that. And I, I myself have been guided by the wants and desires, the Democratic wants and desires of JetBlue flight attendants on the organizing committee. So, Jet, so JetBlue's falling short with that argument. And as I said, it's the same old recycled anti-worker, anti-trade union nonsense that we would expect from JetBlue. You know, they don't want a union on the property. They have a business plan that envisions uh, increased profits off the backs of workers. And when workers organize themselves into a trade union, that, that their business plan um, gets slapped. So, of course, they're not going to want the, the JetBlue flight attendants organizing themselves into a union. And it, I think it's obvious to the JetBlue flight attendants themselves that this is not a third-party interloper, that this is they themselves who have done this. So, yeah, so you have this, this very long bargaining process at, at Allegiant Air. And if JetBlue tries to similarly drag its feet, do you have some ideas about uh, what comes next? Yes, and the Allegiant process was a long process for the organization of the Transport Workers Union, but it was not a long process for my leadership, for my presidency of the National Union. It was a really short process. In fact, we settled we settled the contract five weeks out of the convention where I won the full four year term. And mm-hmm. I would I would say, you know, I just in all honesty, the uh predecessors at the TW really never ran a strategic campaign against Allegiant. They never, they never identified uh, vulnerabilities and weak spots in the employer that, that we could go after um, to exert pressure on them to settle a contract. And that's exactly what I've done as, a, as the president of the TWU. I've, I've um, helped design and, and executed a, a strategic campaign uh, that was in its very early stages against Allegiant when they came to the bargaining table and settled. And that's exactly what we're going to do with JetBlue. We're going to run. We're going to organize and execute a well-thought-out, uh, tactical, strategic campaign that involves rank-and-file JetBlue flight attendants um, fighting for their own contract. So with that said, in terms of a strategic campaign, I do not envision a negotiation with JetBlue taking, um, taking six years, as it did with Allegiant. And JetBlue will have to make a decision. They're going to have to make a decision whether they want to be in a state of war with their own flight attendants not with the leadership of the TWU, but with their own um, Transport Workers Union represented flight attendants and rank-and-file bargaining committee that will be democratically elected. So they're going to they're gonna have to make a decision about whether or not they want to go toe-to-toe with their own flight attendants in a very public dispute over what, what, what constitutes equitable working conditions for flight attendants or whether they want to settle. I believe they'll see the virtue in settling with, with the TWU quickly. Anything else people should know about the campaign at JetBlue? Yeah, JetBlue flight attendants are really the face of the the face of the airline. JetBlue flight attendants are largely responsible for the success of the airline. They're the ones that do all the public interaction. They're the ones who have propelled this company into into huge profitability, and they deserve to have their economic security um, looked after. And the company's not doing that. 
And that was John Samuelson of TWU talking about JetBlue workers organizing in the air. And now down on the ground, we are looking at Fort Lauderdale Airport, where workers uh, who do passenger services are organizing with SEIU to pass legislation to raise working conditions as well as flying conditions. Um, they've been organizing masses of airport contract workers around the country for the past few years. Recently, Los Angeles airport workers just got some keystone local legislation passed to raise wages and provide comprehensive safety and security training for the whole workforce. That is not just the traditional security officers we're used to seeing. Now, Florida's Broward County is considering the same kind of legislation, and both union and non-union airport service workers are banding together uh, to raise working and flying conditions for passengers and personnel. The aim is to provide holistic airport security. The mass shooting at the airport about a year ago terrified many workers who felt really unprepared when the whole crowd spiraled into chaos. They now seek equitable wages and labor protections along with comprehensive training so that people can do their job well, be alert and focused in case of an emergency, and more importantly, keep things running smoothly in a public space that is known to be chaotic even on normal days. And the next step is to win union representation so that all workers at the airport can keep moving forward with working conditions. Their wheelchair attendant, Gilderay Grulis, talked about his experience at the mass shooting since that uh, incident happened in, uh, at the uh, at the airport, uh, uh, we are kind of kind of uh, still still haven't uh, get over that yet. Because um, believe it or not, we we are living in a in a dangerous world now, nowadays, and and for this to happen, and everybody from now on is kind of concerned, and that is the reason why um, we are trying to. Um, Launch that campaign to see if they can, you know, uh, arm us with with our uh, with, with the knowledge and, and, and training, and, and in case something like this happen again. And I understand at the time that you were actually with a passenger, you were serving a passenger. Can you talk through what happened at that moment? At the time, I was pushing a I was pushing a wheelchair passenger down to the baggage. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, the chaos is erupted. Uh, and here I am with the passenger. First thing that comes to mind as a human being, as if you want us, to run for cover, you know, run for shelter somehow. But uh, as a, in a professionalism perspective, I've seen, you know, she's also my responsibility right now. And I cannot run and leave her behind because... She's helpless. That's the reason why she's in the, first, in the chair in the first place. So my reaction was to grab her and, and run with her and find shelter. You know, and be doing that, and my job is not in there. I have to confront. I have to confront her to calm down and tell, you know to ensure her that everything will be okay. You know, when she finally comes down, and I encourage her to call her parents family to to let them know everything's okay then uh, you know when it's properly when it's okay then uh, they will open the airport so they could be able to come to pick her up you know so these kind of things we just we just uh, did it me and my colleagues that uh, we, we did we did them you know by instinct and not because you have a proper training to know 
exactly what to do, but you do it by instinct since you've been working at the airport for so long. So you you, you sort of know inside out at the airport where you could go, you know, to feel a little safer and when that happened. But um, besides that, we didn't have any anything, you know, that, that didn't taught us how to do it. Going forward, um, it's the holiday season. There's a lot of stress going on, even on a normal day at an airport. Can you talk about why it's important when we think about things like security? It's not just an issue of training. It's also an issue of your general working conditions. Talk about the other aspects of this, which are the living wage and some of the other protections that you guys are pushing for, um, which are sort of related to security, but not directly well, uh, um, let's put it this way. Um, having a happy happy employees, happy workers, it's, it's, it's a good thing because uh, I'm going to tell you what. Uh, you come into work, you're very happy, you know, you're always in a good mood, you know, and don't forget we, we're dealing with, with, uh, with the customers. We're doing a customer service. Every time you have a customer service agent that, you know, likes what he's doing and he's happy to what he's doing, it's always good. So in order for, for, for this customer, to, I mean, for this agent to be happy, he has to be treated fairly. He has to be treated right, you know, and, and this way he'll be, he'll be more alert because he's in a good mood. He's, he's not frustrated. He's not thinking too hard. You know, he's focusing on his job. You know, besides what we're doing, we all like what we're doing because that's a good, then it's, it's a good thing. You, you get to meet meet a lot of people, different people, and, and especially the elderly people, they're always giving you good advice and, you know, why wise advice that, you know, that youngsters won't give you. But uh, um, when it comes to, to, to um, living wage, the way the, the wages and, and the benefits and all that, we are working for subcontractors. We are that pushing chairs. Most of the time we are working for subcontractors. So the, the subcontractors, are, you know, they, when they're not controlled and, and, and at the airport right now, they're not really regulated, you know, they can cut corners and, and get away with a lot of things. So that is the reason why we want to have a, um, a law in place, you know, to regulate it, all the subcontractors, what, what they got to do, you know, how they, they got to treat their, their employees fairly, and, you know, in this way, um, I think that's what the, the security will come in place. Because, uh, you know, since you, you have a fresh mind, you're focusing on what you're doing at your job, and then, you know, your eyes is open, your ears is open, whatever that you see is kind of suspected or you heard, then you could go ahead and, and do, take the, the proper step to avoid any, any casualty, any chaos like, like it happened in the last January. Talk about the stresses of being a wheelchair attendant and what you have to deal with from day to day um, because it's not easy even on a normal day, especially during the holidays, right? Uh, it's, 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 not, it's not easy, as you said. Uh, it's not easy at, uh, at any given days because uh, sometimes you're pushing the chairs and then the, 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 the passenger that you're pushing, sometimes they, they're very demanding. They ask you a lot. And you have to do it. That's that's your job, and you have to be patient with them. And some some of it is very easy going. Some are not. So some are very difficult to deal with. And as you can know, um, when you know, as you get older, some people are getting grumpy, and for some reason they might come into the airport very, you know, unhappy. 
but they're going to pass that uh, unhappiness on you. You know, they're going to put that frustration on you. But uh, you as a professional, you will have to understand, you have to know, you know, how to deal with it. In the upcoming days, man, it's going to be crazy like usual. You know, so uh, um, we will, as, as normal, we will always do our best to, you know, to, to, to make this operation run. With better training, I mean, is that something that you hope at least can start to be addressed? Actually, uh, the training and, you know, that, as I said, would not take away the anxiety people have since in that shooting. And um, to move forward, um, we just um, we just show up to work and God wills and taking, you know, praying and hoping nothing bad happens so we can go home to our family afterwards. Yeah, so, I think at the end of the day, everyone wants the same thing at the airport, right? Everyone wants to get yeah, home that's safe. Exactly, exactly. It's a common thing, you know. I talked to Melafete Sine, a wheelchair attendant, about what he's facing on the job every day. So we're asking that we can have better training and also uh, we can have like a good pay too, uh, especially the training pay because we are the airport and then we want to be equipped for any situation when something happens at the airport. Or if we encounter something at the airport, we'll be able to defend ourselves. And we are also coping so we can have a better hours, like full time, uh, so that we cannot force us to do two or three jobs. And then we want the stability, you know. How does what you're asking for compare with what you're getting now? Oh, what we're getting now and... How can I say it's not good in any way because uh, we still not have training. I don't know if you were um, aware about what did happen at the airport because of that. And then we can see that um, if we had a better training and then we can help, uh, we could help uh, better. And then from that situation to now, nothing did happen. And we don't receive even anyone to come and talk to us about the situation. If something happened again, and they are to defend ourselves. And also from where we came from until now about the um, airport situation. And also about hours, we work hourly. And then some of us have been working 16 hours, 20 hours. And then that forced them to do like two or three jobs. And then it's not safe when someone is working two or three jobs. And then they're still doing it because they don't get the better um, hours. And we are also asking that we can have like um, other benefits like insurance or other maybe fly, uh, free fly, something like that. And then we, we, we are nothing now. And we just... Oh, uh, like I say, anything I've been done. Why is it still important that you have a union representing you on the job? Maybe you get me wrong. Uh, we don't get anything to the law. Right? I say we are working with union. I say their way or our voice and then is like a refuge for us. Is where we go and refuse ourselves where we cannot breathe about the, 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 the working situation at the airport. And then we use the union, we come to the union, we explain what we're going through, 
and then they give us advice. Uh, we are not member of the union. They give us advice uh, to work out uh, we uh, what we have to do and then to fight for our union. Union. Can you talk about what security at the airport actually means to you? Because it sounds like it's not just what we usually think about um, when we think about you know, the the official security. Um, security might mean something like providing emergency medical care. So can you talk about what that means to you? The airport, there is a the slogan at the airport where they say security is, all of them are concerned about the security. It's not the police officer. It's not about the airport administration. I think um, especially security, the first people, person, to respond about the security at the airport is us, uh, we, the employees, and then because we are the person who get um, in contact with the um, uh, passengers, and we are the person working at the ramp, doing every uh, all the work at the airport, and then anything um, that might happen at the airport. We are the first people that might be affected at the situation, not the airport administration, not the police officer. We are the one uh, who supposed to be the first responders. Um, while the police, so if one or two police pol- uh, police officers working are uh, working at the airport, and then while they ro- they call for backup, and then we as the um, uh, we as the workers, we have to respond to a lot of things, um, especially when the shooting was happening at the airport. I was there to testify that and then helping to the passenger. If I didn't have some training um, and respond to the situation from my country, and then I will not be able to do anything, you know, because at that situation, I used what I knew from my country and then to help others but no, not because I received something, some training. How do the working conditions affect overall airport security? Because the regular flying public might see these different things that you're demanding, but not quite understand what they have to do with each other. But let me ask you a question too. If you hire a security man to secure your house, if that man is tired because he's been working log hours to another job and then when you come to secure your house and then you get uh if you fell or you fall asleep are your house is, is secure when the worker is uh, um is working like two or three jobs to survive on and then when you come maybe to the uh, uh, one shift of the at the airport you look like so tired are you think that the, that worker is able like, to defend ourselves or to do their job properly there's a lot of issues going on around the haitian community in florida regarding immigration and the tps yeah but that situation is a situation i say that affects a lot of our communities because we are one we're supposed to support uh, each other even the um, the the people who does affect who don't affect with that situation and then um, is um, like I say who doesn't who don't have a direct connection with that situation is affected with that situation because um, our community is the primary economic base to Haiti you know every single family here have people 
and, and aid to their support, maybe by school, to pay school or house or anything or something. And, uh, that when that situation or if that situation um, or the situation of CPS and then that um, stop those people from working and then imagine what could be happen with those, those those people and that person was helping, you know, and that is something that give a lot of stress, a lot of um, like like mean a lot of talking too in our community to know what should we do in that situation, you know. And that was Melafete Sine and Gildare Gorillas, two workers who are trying to organize for better working conditions at Fort Lauderdale Airport. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. My pick for this episode is the Silicon Valley Paradox. One in four people are at risk of hunger. It's by Charlotte Simmons at The Guardian. It's a good depiction of one of the deepest paradoxes of Silicon Valley, and it's actually the new normal across America. It starts with the scene of cafeteria workers at a fancy Silicon Valley office headquarters who can barely put food on their own tables. What makes this contrast even more stunning is the enormous wealth that the tech industry continues to accumulate, while budget cuts and the shredding of social welfare programs slowly strangles the blue-collar underclass of California that undergirds this gargantuan global empire. The Guardian portrays the everyday lives of the rusty underbelly of Silicon Utopia. There are the cafeteria workers at Intel who might be getting food stamps when they get home, the college students who've been scooping meals to manage their budgets. Younger children here have trouble going to school as they drift through the homeless shelter system. All the characters tell a story of heavy debts, rising homelessness, and chronic food insecurity in a land that's supposed to embody the shiny future of the global economy. The combination of soaring housing costs and the affordable housing shortage in the Bay Area, thanks to a red-hot real estate market, has left many displaced and isolated, many of them immigrants and people of color that you don't often think about when you think about Silicon Valley. A nurse, for instance, talked about how, even though her job entails serving the less fortunate every day, she can barely keep her own life together. Quote, issues in her personal life, which she preferred not to detail, left her separated from her two children and their father. She thought about moving in with family, but worried about the burden. My brother was recovering from a stroke. My mother's old. She says, I couldn't put more struggle on them, so what I found was my car. She was so poor, even as a nurse, that she could not afford a place to live, and her family couldn't afford her either. None of these issues are new, but the statistics form a consistent pattern that continually underscores how communities are rapidly eroding under a neoliberal economic regime. And for all of Silicon Valley's libertarian flash, the oppressive social barriers of the state are bearing down heavily on the poor because their poverty is, in fact, the profit of these corporate giants. The housing and food subsidies they get are extremely limited, People have to rely on food banks to survive. Those are already overstretched. According to The Guardian, 
quote, high housing costs means a family of four earning $84,750 or less in Santa Clara County is considered low income when determining eligibility for assisted housing programs. Ironically, this opens up great charity opportunities for the big name philanthropies that all the huge tech moguls can boast about financing. Uh, there will be many more opportunities in the near future to donate to the poor if the current tax bill goes through because that will dramatically raise health care costs and reduce so social spending across the states. We all know that the U.S. is a dramatically unequal society, but the proximity of the outsized wealth of big tech and the deprivation that lies in their shadow speaks to not only injustice, but to a direct ongoing theft of capital from the poorest to the wealthiest. The Guardian quotes a study finding that over half a million homeless people are without a place to sleep indoors on a single night this year. That's a slight increase over the last year, and it suggests that, quote, despite a fizzy stock market and a burgeoning gross domestic product, the poorest Americans are still struggling to meet their most basic needs, and it's not an accident of a failing market. One thing to keep in mind this holiday season is that this is strategically designed predation. The political turmoil over the tax bill is often fought through in Congress using abstract economic terms and statistics, but the real-life impacts will be much harder to understand, that is, until it happens to you. The Me Too revelations, as we discussed earlier on today's show, continue to roll on, but there has been a tendency in recent weeks for some people to try to recast revelations of sexual harassment as, quote, sex panic or policing sex. Yet as several writers, including friend of the show and dissent board member Atusa Abrahamian, have noted, this moment is fundamentally about work. My favorite of these pieces is my ARG choice for this week. It is also a friend of the show, Melissa Jira Grant, at the New York Review of Books Daily, and it is titled The Unsexy Truth About Harassment. One of the things about sexual harassment conversations is that they often tend to be defined by how traumatic the behavior was, how violent the victim has to have a compelling story of how wounded she was or else she will not be believed, photos of her behaving, you know, big giant air quotes, sexy, or her clothing choices will be used to decide that she could not possibly have been as traumatized as she claimed. Meanwhile, the work, the genius perhaps, of the harasser is often discussed as if it's a massive loss for the world. What's not discussed nearly often enough is the work of the victims and how the real cost of harassment often has, if not an explicit dollar value, and plenty of it does, as Salma Hayek's story of being bullied and harassed by Harvey Weinstein should remind us, but a value in lost work. People are driven out of jobs, be they prestigious Hollywood acting and producing jobs, or a retail job they desperately need to pay the bills. They are shoved out of promotions by the harasser or by others who turn a blind eye to what's happening. Many of these moments aren't, as Melissa writes, necessarily traumatic. Sometimes they're just a waste of time. And they shouldn't have to be traumatic in order to count. We don't have to be perfect victims or wilting flowers, as some of these articles have tended to cast us, to note that the big cost of harassment is often more work. Melissa writes, quote, The reactions to Me Too, what has become a shorthand for a mass reckoning with sexual harassment, have taken almost the opposite emphasis. Sex has overshadowed harassment. The stories women have related under the Me Too banner are getting edited down to something else, a vaguer behavior, sexual misconduct. This is a mistake. 
Misconduct can sound like a purely interpersonal problem, a disagreement that causes, quote, offense, but is no one's fault in particular. Harassment, however, is enabled by a system, the boss, the human resources department, if there is one, a workplace culture of disregard. Harassment at its most effective is in such an enabling environment. It can also create one, even if that environment is just what it's like at night in your inbox. In rewriting these accusations as instances of sexual misconduct and not workplace harassment, women are returned to the unwanted role of sexual gatekeepers, which reduces women's power to their sexual availability, including even its absence. Calling out behavior that aims at or results in women's exclusion at work has already given way to debates over the meaning of hugs and kisses and arguments about an allegedly brewing hysteria over sex. But women are not asking to be insulated from sex. Collectively naming sexual harassment is one way to con combat male dominance as it is expressed at work, but that is not a collective panic about or the refusal of sex. End quote. The solution is not just the firing of particular abusers, but changing the relations of power on the job, as we discuss so often on this show. Melissa writes, quote, Our conflict is not over sex or with men in particular or in general, but over power and collective power, collective struggle, in which the rules of the game are changed, as the JetBlue flight attendants and so many other workers know, is the real solution and the real struggle. That is all the time we have for today. We will be off for the holidays and will return in the new year full of fresh, hot class war goodness for you. In the meantime, keep up the struggle. And as always, you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a flight attendant or an airport worker, a tipped employee or an unpaid intern. Thanks, as always, to our supporters, our listeners, our, especially our monthly donors. A belabored tote bag makes an excellent holiday gift, I'm just saying. Your $5 a month donation really does go a long way. You can find out more at DescentMagazine.org. Thanks also to our producer, Natasha Lewis, and the whole crew at Descent. And thank you to everyone who sends us tips, stories, and who joins us on the show. We've been at this for nearly five years and couldn't do it without all of you, so thank you for keeping us going. We will be back in 2018. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>